Okay, friends, good morning. Here we go. Man, thank God that church is not a production, nor is it a Sunday morning. It is the people of God with Christ our head. Amen? Amen, amen. Okay, y'all, so we have, and as Nathaniel said, we're a, we're a group of house churches. We're a family of house churches. That's normally how we meet in homes. Every first Sunday we're here. And so we've been in, we're walking through Revelation, and we've been in Revelation 2 and 3, which are uh, letter, in particular, words to the churches in Turkey, seven churches. Next week, so we're not through those yet. I'm not skipping them. Next week in house church, we'll be back in those, in those churches to finish up those couple churches there. But as I preach every first Sunday, what I want to do is uh, I get essentially 10 to 12 chances this, in this series this year. To, to preach. And so to, I want to give you theological blocks, a theological grid for the book of Revelation. So we're jumping ahead this Sunday, just a bit to chapters four and five. And what you see here, as you listen to Nathaniel read this amazing text, probably quite possibly my two favorite chapters in, in the Bible. What you see is a real jump from uh, letters that are sort of like edicts in form from the king, from King Jesus the true emperor of heaven, to his people, to his church, to his body. And now we get back to what kind of we think, tend to think of in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, which is this amazing cosmic scene. And how does, I almost said Paul, how does John start this section here that Nathaniel read for us? He says, after I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So what he does is he takes us from the earthly view to the heavenly view. And this is one of the big things. There are a lot of dualities in the book of Revelation. And this is one of them. The duality of the heavenly reality and the earthly reality. And what John is saying is, he's saying, there's a door that was open and Jesus himself bid me come and look into that door to see what was happening in heaven. Because what happens in heaven determines what happens on the earth. And so what happens is we get an inside view into the control room of the cosmos right here. And also what we see, if you pay careful attention to the language here that John gives us in this first verse, which sets up this new passage here that really is the beginning of the rest of the book. There's a sense in which everything else was just an introduction. And this is sort of the beginning in earnest of the of the book of Revelation. Um, Because from this point, we have Christ and what he has done, who God is and what he's done preeminently in Christ and the rest of history. But what John says here is important. He says there's an open door in heaven and he was bid to come up here. And what what does Jesus tell him? The risen Christ says, I will show you what must take place after this. Okay, but what we see here is chapters four and five, the things that immediately proceed Um, are not things that happen after this. Uh, They are, in fact, things that have already happened. But what does happen, what what is in in that after this is starting in chapter 6. If you go to chapter 6, which we'll start looking at soon together, you see history start to proceed as the seals are opened, the trumpets are blared, and the bowls are poured out. And then the end comes. Then all things are made new through Christ. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is for all that after this to happen, this isn't included. Chapters four and five aren't the after this part. So why are they here? They're here because they show us 
what they show us the key to history, the key to history unfolding. What has to happen so that history can move forward is what we see in this opening into the heavenlies in this control center here in chapters four and five. Um, Okay, so see if I can not drop stuff. So let's just walk through the text. I'm not, this is not going to be a line by line, but this is an amazing, amazing text. And it's really meant to be a sort of cataclysm on our senses. The book of Revelation is full of symbol. It's to create an environment. And what we see, especially in chapter four, is to create an environment of almost shock and awe. And so John is brought up into the throne room, which is what happens here determines everything else that happens on the earth. And what we see is at the center, we basically just think about it as a as a a ring of concentric circles with the most important thing in the bullseye in the middle. And what is in the middle of those of those circles? God himself on a throne. And if you'll notice He is seated on a throne. He is in power. And look, he is undisturbed. He's not uncaring. He is undisturbed by all the turmoil that is going on on this earth. But he's not uncaring. And I'm going to unpack that. But we don't ever see God himself in chapter four. What you basically have in chapter four and five is a micro biblos. You have a mini Bible. You have basically shrunken down into two chapters, Genesis to all the way through the end of Revelation. Essentially, if you want to even boil it down some more to simplify it, you basically have not not totally. You basically have uh, the old covenant and the Old Testament in chapter four. And then you have the new covenant fulfilled in Christ and the rest of history in chapter five. So it's in two chapters. We have God's plan from creation through redemption and recreation in these two chapters. It's an amazing uh, scene. And what we have at the center of all of it is God reigning in power. He's an awesome God. He's, he's beautiful. We're not going to unpack each of these symbols because there's a sense in which they're made to layer and pile on top of each other, one after another with the color and the glory and the beauty instead of just um, unpacking each one of them. But we will, we will look at a few. We see God on his throne, although we cannot see God. Um, and he's beautiful. He's got colors of red and green. He's got an emerald, a green rainbow around him. So there's a lot of Exodus 19 imagery here. We see thunder. We see lightning. It's a terrifying picture. He's an awesome God. There's a sense in which he's unapproachable because what does he have around him? Can you just walk up to him and say hi? No, you can't even see him. He's got thunder and lightning around him. He's got these uh, 24 thrones with these king priests clad in white, these pure um, individuals, probably humans. Okay, Um, in white on thrones surrounding him. And then he's got these these creatures around him that are flying and saying, holy, 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 worthy are you constantly. So he's ringed by these awesome creatures. And um, but in the midst of this terror where what what does Exodus 19 tell us? It's Israel coming out of Egypt. God has brought them out with a mighty hand. He saved them. He's a God of salvation. Has did he save Israel because she was such a good people? No, no, not at all. It's a picture of saving a people who don't deserve to be saved. It's a picture of, of us, his church, right? He saves them because he's good through, with no help from them. Single-handedly, he brings them the plagues, the Red Sea. He devastates the powerhouse of the ancient Near East, Egypt. 
And he brings them out. And then he brings them in Exodus 19 to the mountain. And he says, don't do things exactly according to my word. You need a mediator. You need an inter. You need Moses to go between me and you. Because if you even touch the mountain that my presence is on without my permission, you'll die. So this is a God that is good. He's holy. He has to be approached only exactly according to his word. But he's a God of covenant. He's a God of promise. That's what the rainbow represents. The rainbow represents that he is a God who promises to bless us even as he will take the curse upon himself. That is whispered in this chapter. We see uh, these thrones of 24. Scholars are all over the place. I'm just going to give you a, a few things as we move through chapter 4, and then we'll, we'll sit on chapter 5 together, the most glorious. He's a God of awesome power who's not approachable casually at all. He's surrounded by these thrones. Commentators are a little bit varied, but the best guess is these 24 thrones probably represent all of God's people, all of God's people that have trusted in him and his word and his covenant that he's made with us, the way that we can be his people through what he has done. And um, you have the 12 tribes, his people under the old covenant, a people who trusted in his promise, who were delivered from Egypt. And then you have a people um, that probably represented by the 12 apostles. In the New Testament. And so together, and you see there's no distinction here. We are all from the beginning all the way through the end. There's only one way to be God's people. Justin enunciated it earlier. Nathaniel said it in a different way. We are his people through faith in his word, his covenant promise. Not through our own works. Through his work. And his name is Jesus. And we get there in this glorious picture that John shows us here. So he's surrounded by these thrones. They are kings. They are given dominion. They will rule on the earth. They're clad in white. It's, some, it's almost like it's a garment that's been given to them. Their purity has been placed over them and received through faith. But there's no way to approach God but in absolute purity. That's one of the things we see here. But none of us can achieve that. We all fall short. And so that purity is placed on them through faith. And then again, we get to this. Think about these rings as representing all of creation and not necessarily super discreet. After that, we get these rings that are taken from Isaiah 6 and bits of Ezekiel. John is pulling from the Old Testament. And he's, he's basically in these creatures taking the 24 thrones, God's people, humanity, his own, his own beloved and blood-bought people. And he's adding to that the rest of creation through these creatures. Um, if you look at verse 6 and following, we see that they were full of eyes. That's in Isaiah. That's in Ezekiel. The first living creature, there are four creatures surrounding God's throne that are flying constantly saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The first is like a lion. The second, like an ox. The third has the face of a man. And the fourth is like an eagle. So you have, you have domestic and wild creatures, right? The ox is domestic. The lion is wild. You have mankind. And then you have those that fly. And we've already had the sea here. We've already had the sea mentioned. And what is the sea? How is the sea described in this terrifying cataclysmic, awe-inspiring passage. It's in verse 6. It stretches out before God. It's kind of lost on us at first, as if it were a sea of glass like crystal. Seth had it. Sorry, buddy. I believe you. What's so important about that is that the deeps in the ancient, ne- ne- in the ancient Near East, ancient world, 
were terrifying places, and they were often and almost always represented as not just scary places where things could come up from beneath. You think of, I think of the Jaws, the front cover of Jaws, which terrified me as a kid. You know, back in the blockbuster days, you'd walk through, I'm revealing my age now. Some of you guys don't even know what, some of you youngins don't even know what that is. You we couldn't stream back then, y'all. And we'd go into a movie store and you'd look at the covers and you see the, that lady that's blissfully swimming along, you know, on the surface. And there's this thing coming up. Because in the sea, you can't see what's coming up from beneath you. So the, in the ancient Near World, physically, obviously, it's a place where there's still so many sunken treasures there in the ocean today that we've never, that have been discovered, that haven't been discovered. Um, it's a place of danger. It's a place where the surface is unstable and beneath the surface, God help us all. But also it was almost universally in the ancient Near East, a, play, a portal. It was a symbol. The physical was a symbol of danger in the spiritual realm. It was a, it was, it was a place of, of evil. Not that the sea, the sea is God's, he made it. But it symbolized, especially in this kind of literature, a place of terror, a place of the unknown, a place where things on the land, you can see what's coming. In the, in the deeps, you cannot. Things are swallowed up. That's one of the keys to the book of Jonah. He goes down, 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 and he's swallowed up. But through that swallowing up, God saves him and essentially gives him another chance to be faithful. Um, and so, but what is the sea? Is the sea terrorized, ter- you know, full of terror to God? Is he wringing his hands over the tumult in the physical and in the spiritual? No, it's like glass. It's smooth. It's like crystal. It's beautiful and it's smooth. He's not, you think of Psalm 2, he's not wringing his hands as the nation shouted him, as Putin tries to do his thing, as world wars break out, as, as a worldwide pandemic breaks out. God is not worried, but he's also not unconcerned. He's a God of promise. He's a God who saves his people. He's a God who's faithful, but he's a God who's seated on his throne at the nerve center of the universe and he's in control. But before we move on, I just want you to get this picture that I think John is overwhelmingly trying to paint for us. And he's doing that because Jesus has taken him up here and saying, we concern ourselves as humans with all sorts of things. But what I want you to understand is that if you miss this, nothing else matters. At the center of what is, is that God is seated on his throne. And that we cannot approach him as we, just as we want to. He's not a God to take casually. He is ringed by, at the center of reality, he is seated on his throne. He is ringed by these pure kings and priests whose job, responsibility, and privilege is to bring, the priest was to bring people to God through sacrifice. To bring a sinful people to a holy God in peace through the sacrifice of something innocent that took their place. He's ringed by these amazing king priests and then by these terrifying creatures who have eyes everywhere, who represent all of creation. And he's at the center and he's directing all things and he's in total control. And even the sea is like crystal before him. And what we are to see is that at the center of everything, controlling all things is this good, awesome, unapproachable, holy, all-powerful God of love. But, and it's really like I said, it's a picture, the heavenlies are, of the earth. So let me, let me break it down like this before we move into chapter 5, which is, of course, the climax. Not only of this chapter, but therefore of all of history. Nothing happens, nothing works without chapter 5, without what happens in chapter 5. That is what John wants us to understand. But before I do, describe this picture in chapter 4 as a picture of all creation 
centered around God and his throne. But he really can't be approached. And what I mean by that is we see that here, but that's a picture of what the way that the earth is actually built. And God gives us this through his Old Testament and through his people who who actually build their lives. They architect their lives around God's revealed word in the under the old covenant, the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures, what Jesus just called the scriptures. Um, And that is that you have the cosmos that God made. It's all good, but it's been corrupted by our sin. It's all good. And then you have the earth, which is God's special place that we know this more and more as we have the Hubble Space Telescope and we see the far reaches of space. We understand how what an amazingly privileged position we're in is it on earth. There's no other place like it as far as we know. So the earth is even more, very much more exclusive in its bio and its, you know, bios and its life. And then on the earth, you have this special place called Palestine, called Israel, called the Holy Land. It's where God chose to put his people. And I think there's a good chance that that's where Eden actually was. It's a special strip of land that is the convergence of three different continents. Okay. And it's a place of great. The, Israel had to rely on God big time because she was not a she didn't have great armies. And by the way, the, the sea was especially dangerous and fearful to Israel because Israel was not a nautical people. Just back to that. But this strip of land, it's a tiny strip. It's the convergence of these great world empires. Um, it's like the crossroads of the nations. God's people, he put them there to rely on him, not to rely on their own strength. But it is this special place on planet Earth. And then within that special little tiny patch of land, what do you have? You have Jerusalem. You have the city of the great king, um, where God's throne is, where he meets with his people in the Old Testament, through sacrifice, through the priests, through his word. And then within Jerusalem, what do you have? A smaller concentric circle. You have the Temple Mount, which is where we go to meet with God. And then within that, you have the court of the Gentiles. And then within that, a smaller ring, you have the court of the women, Jewish women. And then within that, you have the court of the Jewish men. And, then with, and you can't pass if you're not a Jewish man. And then within that, we have the court of the priests, where the, only the priests can go. And then within that, you have the place where the priests that are designated can be offering sacrifices outside the actual temple. And then within that, you have the temple and the holy place, where only the designated priests can go. And there's a lampstand, and there's the bread, the presents. And there's the incense. And then within that, what do you have? You have this ultra exclusive place where God actually comes down in his presence to meet with his people. And once a year from one tribe within this chosen people in this land, in this city, the high priest goes one time a year into this most holy place, this holy of holies to bring God's sinful people before him. And for God to meet with his people. And he bears their names, in a sense, on his chest. And this is the way that we can be with God, is exactly according to his word, exactly according to sacrifice. He's made a way. But it's all a picture. It's all a picture. And so you can see how, if you think about it, if you've ever read The Lord of the Rings, and Minas Tirith is like the seven-tiered city, and at the very top you have, you have the, the steward of Gondor, and that's where the king is come to reign, and it's just up and up and up you go. That's the this, this sense in which the geography of earth, God makes it like that. And it's that way because this is the way that heaven is. But God is, in a sense, unapproachable. So we move into chapter five, and he's awesome, but he's the one, he's the one that directs all things and the one that we need to be with. So that's, you can see the problem mounting. 
John continues, he says in chapter five, then I saw, so worthy is God and he's, he's worthy of what to receive glory, honor, and power. He's thrice praised. Why? What is chapter four? Chapter four is God, the creator. He's worthy of all praise because he has made all things. We owe him everything. Without him, we wouldn't exist. Chapter four is God, the creator, but chapter five, if it's, it's almost hard to believe is even better. It's a God who's the same God who's even more worthy of praise because not only is he creator, but he's redeemer. He's a recreator. And we're going to see that here. So John says, he moves into chapter five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Again, John never sees God, but he sees uh, his right hand and he sees what he's holding. It's a scroll, right? And it's written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And I just want to pause here and say this. This is the question of the ages. Because what is the scroll? There's a little bit of, there's a little bit of divide on this among scholars, but basically to condense it, the scroll, the scrolls were almost all never written on both sides because of the, the vellum of the parchment was rough on the back and for other reasons. The fact that it's written on both sides means almost certainly that it is God's perfect plan for the advance of the rest of history. It, it, is, it is his plan for everything to happen exactly as he wishes it to happen in his sovereignty, in his goodness. Um, and it is perfectly sealed, though. With seven seals just means that it is seven is the perfect number. It's the number of fullness. It's God's number. It means that it is perfectly sealed and it cannot be God's plan for all things as creator cannot be set in motion because there's a problem. And what is that problem? Sin. We who were given as God's prized creatures alone in his image, even over the angels, dominion over all things to image him, to be his co-regents over creation. We rebelled against him. We went our own way. And because of that, everything under the charge of Adam, he cracked on the inside when he pulled away from goodness itself and all under his charge was fractured and cracked. And, and man hasn't been in rebellion against God ever since. And so for God's plan to move forward, the problem is that he has this amazing and good plan, but the one, the only person to be able to, um, the only type of creature to be able to set that plan in motion is the one that was given dominion. But the one that was given dominion is corrupted. We are all born in Adam and we are all born into sin as sinners. And so there's this intractable problem. This, this God's perfect plan for the advance of everything, for his glory and our good, is sealed perfectly. And what happens here? No one in heaven, who's worthy? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So what is John's reaction? We might think that he's overreacting. He's not. He's, he's giving the perfect reaction to this intractable problem. God has made all things good, but the sin problem has, has created this huge fissure that means that God's plan for all things, his good plan cannot move forward. So he's weeping loudly. It's the worst, thing. It's the worst news possible. Verse five, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, this is surely amazing. If we just pause here, 
and then move toward sort of considering the rest of the chapter and then give you some application. What we see here is that there's this there's this figure and he is going to solve the problem of the ages. Where is where is the worthy one looked for? He's looked for. I mean, you think about the KGB uh, back in the day, the Soviet KGB and how they would come in and ransack someone's room, someone's house looking for a bit of information or the Nazi, the Nazi thugs, the Gestapo. Uh, and, and you hear stories and you read stories about how they would. They would literally open all the drawers, turn over all the furniture, every piece of paper, all the, uh, all the beds would be turned over. Everything is ransacked. Everything is opened up. That's nothing compared to the, uh, the way that the worthy one is looked for. Um, heaven, earth, under the earth. Is there a single one that's worthy? Is there a single one that has the power and the capacity to set God's plan in motion and that is able by representing man. Only man can do it, but, but, man, but only man can't do it. Because we're all born of Adam. And what we see is the solution. He says, weep no more, the lion. So we, we are expecting he has conquered, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Wait a minute, he's from one of the 12 tribes of Israel? He's a man, he's going to solve the problem? He's not only David's son, what does it say here in chapter, in verse 5? He's the root. David comes from him. He's David's Lord and David's son at the same time. He's the son of God, born of woman, fully human and fully God, capable as God of solving the problem of cutting the Gordian knot and able to because he's a real man and only a man can represent men to regain that dominion. And so what we're expecting He single-handedly, what does he do? He approaches the throne of God with no protection, like a laser boring through every single barrier, straight into the most exclusive place, the throne room, the Holy of Holies. And he walks up and he grabs from the right hand of power the perfectly sealed book. He grabs it. And what does he do? He opens it. What we're expecting is this awesome figure. But what do, we, what do we get? John's hearing about all these things from the elder after weeping. But what does he turn and see in verse 6? In the midst of everything, between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders, he saw a lamb standing. Now notice, God has been sitting this whole time. It's repeated four or five times before this. He's seated. He's in power. But he's not unconcerned. But it kind of seems like he is. But what do we see here? We see a lamb standing. He's in the midst of everything, and it's a lamb, though. It's a woolly quadruped. That is not what we were expecting. And furthermore, he was as though it had been slain. A slain lamb. The one who came to to take our place. To take the place of sinful man in our life and in our death. Suffering in life, living a perfectly righteous life, a perfect law-keeping from the heart in our place. And dying an excruciating death where he bore all the wrath of a just and perfect God for our sins on the cross. There is this one who through his weakness, apparent weakness, and laying of his own, his own life down, through his surrender, we see conquest that actually sets the rest of history in motion. So this is the point, among others, that I think John is having us to see. That from now on, the wheels that will turn history forward, 
and bring it to its perfect conclusion, exactly as God has written it to be, will be through this conquest that looks like weakness. Through suffering. In the name of Christ Jesus. Through surrender. Through letting go. It's the ultimate act of power. Because what, what does he have here? He has seven horns, which doesn't mean that he literally... He's not... By the way, Jesus is not... This is Jesus, in case you're wondering. I think you know this. He's not a lamb. He's like a lamb. Why? Because he laid his life down. By, according to God's perfect plan, willingly to take our place. Um, he doesn't actually have seven horns. A horn means power. What it means is that he has all power. What did he tell his disciples in Matthew 28? All authority has been given me. Did Jesus always have all power as the pre-incarnate son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, as fully God? Of course. Did he always have all power as a man? The answer is no. But through his conquest in his life and death and vindicated by his resurrection, now as a man, for the first time since Adam, he has all dominion and he gives it to those who look to him by faith. He makes us kings. He has all power, and, he, and it says that he, uh, he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He sees all, he has all power, and he, through this conquest of laying his life down, is going to be able to make history move forward perfectly. And he goes and he takes, he cuts through all the red tape, as it were, all, all of the barriers that, keep, that truly keep us as sinful people from God. And he approaches the throne and he takes the scroll. And he opens it. And the rest of the book, by the way, this is why I say it's the key to the book. Not only because what Jesus, John is saying this, and I'll move to application now. He's saying this, that the conquest of the God man through the laying down of his life, power through weakness is what sets history in motion and allows God's perfect plan to go forward. But we see that in the book. The first thing that happens in chapter six is the breaking open of the first seal. So the book for God's plan for all things begins to be opened and set in motion. And from the, one of the last seals come the trumpets, the seven trumpets. And from the trumpets come the bowls and then the end. So what we're seeing here is that God is able to accomplish his perfect will for all things through the conquest that is central in history of the living Christ who died for us. And the economy of the cross, think about what's happening in Ukraine right now. God is seeing his kingdom move forward as the saints suffer and give their lives up. Okay? It's not as we're fat and happy and living our comfortable lives that God's power is going out through his people. It's as we surrender in the little things, serving one another, laying down our rag rights, choosing not to argue, suffering for our faith in whatever way, perhaps one day giving our lives, who knows? It's gain. Through the economy of the cross, it's how God's kingdom moves forward. Um, and so let me just go ahead and uh, sort of wrap it up and give a few application. If you'll notice here, again, God is creator in chapter four. God is recreator and redeemer in chapter five. It's the lamb who shares the throne. He is fully God. He receives in a monotheistic culture from a monotheist. John, John was a Jew. John is a Jew in heaven. He, he remains a Jew. He only believes in one God. This lamb receives all the praise that's due to God alone. What is John saying? He's saying this lamb is the living God. In, in chapter four, the creator receives a threefold praise. Look in chapter five. Look at verse 12, is it? With a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power 
Count, count them with me. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Sevenfold praise for what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. He shares the throne with God the Father. He brings us following Christ, going behind him as it were. By faith, we can fully approach the unapproachable God and he becomes our father. We are cloaked with an alien righteousness that is not ours. As Justin was saying in his prayer earlier in his lead up to confession, our righteousness is, is received by faith. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our sins were paid for perfectly by his blood. He has made a full way for us to be restored to sonship with the Father. And he is taking us somewhere even better than Eden. And that is where Revelation heads to. It, it finishes with that new creation. Um, and so just a few things. I'll skip over a few as well. We clearly see that Jesus is God. We owe our creation to him, to God. We also owe our salvation to him. This is the same God. Again, he kind of seems he's unapproachable in some ways, but not. He's, yet he's a God of promise and he cares. But in, 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 cha- in chapter four in the Old Testament, it's kind of veiled. We get pictures of it. There's sacrifice. He makes the people for himself, but they're disobedient. He seems angry over their sin a lot, and he is, but he loves them. What's, how is the problem going to be solved? He's seated. Is he unconcerned? We know in Christ that he's the farthest thing from unconcerned. Christ is standing. He's standing to show us a couple of things. One, he cares. He literally walked with us. He relinquished, relinquished all of his God rights while remaining fully God and on the earth. And he came to suffer with us and to bear our burdens. And he was standing, as it were, on a nail on the cross at the pivot point of history, showing us how much he cares. The incarnation shows us nothing if it doesn't show us how much God loves us and the lengths that he will go to to restore us to him. Um, But it also shows us that the standing lamb was slain, but now he is conquered. It looked like he lost, but through that apparent loss, victory. His standing shows us this too. Not only is he not unconcerned, he wins. Death and hell and Satan and sin are at his feet. He has crushed the head of the serpent through his work. In anything that we do in Christ, any loss, any privation, any surrender, any letting go, any death, Ukraine right now, the saints in Ukraine, they're suffering, but through their suffering, they're winning and the kingdom of God is going forward. And this is the only way the kingdom ever goes through it, forward through our death, through letting go of our rag rights, through the economy of the cross. Um, Also, it means that everything matters. He is going to make everything sad come untrue. He can do that because of his cross. He is a God who's expert in turning the worst things into victory. And that's where Revelation takes us, is through all these seals and trumpets and bowls, he brings us to a feast, to a new creation, to a kingdom, to reigning, to ruling, to a party, to all things renewed, to wiping every tear from our eyes. He has a bottle, Psalm 56, where he keeps your tears. Did you know that? I'm looking at an accountant right now. God is the ultimate accountant. No tear. I'm looking at another accountant that's looking around for the other accountant. We got some accountants in here. God never lets anything slip. He knows it all. It's all been paid for in Christ. And he keeps all of our pain and tears in a bottle. And he will wipe those tears from our eyes. And he will make sure that those things contribute to the new creation. 
There is no good thing that will not remain and be restored. We are living in the shadow lands now. We are headed somewhere good. Um, God is sovereign, but he's not unconcerned. He cares. And then finally, I'll finish with this. Um, this passage in Revelation tells us that the cross is the way that God now runs the world until his return. Richard Bauckham, let me just quote him. Let me risk a quote from Richard Bauckham, New Testament scholar. He says, when the slaughtered lamb is seen, quote, in the midst of the divine throne in heaven, that's Revelation 5, 6, and also seven seventeen. the meaning is that Christ's sacrificial death belongs to the way God rules the world. Do you understand that? Everything else is not going to contribute to history unfolding as much as Putin wants it to, as much as we in our selfishness want, want it to. It's not. The symbol of the lamb is no less a divine symbol than the symbol of the one who sits on the throne. And again, I call this the economy of the cross, but let me continue to quote Bauckham. Christ's suffering witness and sacrificial death are, in fact, as we shall see, the key event in God's conquest of evil and establishment of his kingdom on earth. By contrasting what John hears in 5.5 from what he sees in 5.6, John has forged a new symbol of conquest by sacrificial death. And then finally, the continuing and ultimate victory of God over evil, which the rest of Revelation describes, is no more than the working out of the decisive victory of the Lamb on the cross. And I hope that you can see in, this, in these two chapters, in part, how all of history converges on and hangs on this conquest of Christ, and how therefore all of Revelation is built around and actually about the Lamb and his incarnation and his living a life of pleasing the Father from the heart, not for himself, for us as a man, and dying a death that we deserve on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for us, and then rising to show that God the Father accepted that as payment for you and for me and for any sinner who comes to him by faith. He cuts us he bores a perfect hole right through all these boundaries to God and takes us straight to the Father. And this is the way that God is going to rule the world until he returns. Um, not through conquest, but conquest through laying our lives down, through laying our rights down. And that is how at the office, and that is how with our neighbors, we are going to be a witness for Jesus Christ. We have been, we will continue to be. Um, and that is the gospel that we have to preach. It's an open way for any sinner, no matter how egregious their sin, no matter how embroiled they are in their sin, to come straight to the Father through what Christ has done. He's laid his life down for us and he's taken it up again in victory. Um, And if you'll notice, how do the saints, how do they express their adoration? How are they beginning to rule even here in this picture? Through song, through praise, they're, pra- they're praising and worshiping God, and through prayer. This is how we fight our battles. Um, Colin Garbarino finished with this somewhat prosaic quote, but it's okay. It's been such an intense sermon. Colin Garbarino ends his film review of the new Batman in the World and Everything in It podcast uh, on March 4th with this comment. He says, at the end of one very dark night, Batman comes to realize that vengeance won't save the world but maybe hope will. We, of all people, have a great hope, a great hope in Christ. The darker it gets, the more hope we have because we know that Christ, that God is on his throne and that he's standing as the land who was slain and he's with us and he has all authority um, and we in him. And there is a, he has made a straight way to God for us and he is using our pain and loss and suffering 
to build his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you are the word made flesh, Jesus, that you came and lived for us. You died for us. You are risen and reigning, and you are calling all men to yourself. Would we be proclaimers of that message? Would we be embodiments of that message? We say again, Holy Spirit, come and fill us. Cleanse us of our sins by your blood, Jesus. Fill us with a gospel proclamation, a good news to any, uh, any sinner under heaven. Lord, we thank you that you came for us. We thank you that your kingdom is going forth. We bless your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.